We're going to continue our study um, titled, Behold, I Show You a Mystery. And last night, we were looking at the word Hebrew word sowed, which can be translated lots of different ways. The word sowed can mean secret, can be translated secret counsel, the assembly, all those things having to do with God trying to reveal something to his people. And we, were, we stopped last night looking at the Hebrew word satar, S-A-T-A-R, and that's Hebrew word 5641. And we were looking at several scriptures that talk about what it means for God to hide his face. So we stopped last night at Psalm 1011. Um, let's just go back and read that one really quickly. Because when we read about God hiding his face, that has to do with God taking away his blessing, God taking away his protection. But how do the wicked view God hiding his face? Do they view it in the same way that the righteous do? As God taking away his blessing, God taking away his protection. Oh, we need to repent because we need God's protection. We need, how do the wicked view it? Psalm 10, verse 11, it says, He, talking about the wicked, has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. And literally the Hebrew says, He will never see into everlasting. In other words, we can do whatever we want to do. This is the mindset of the wicked. We can do whatever we want to do. God's never going to do a thing about it. Now, is there any place in the scriptures that say in the last days there will come scoffers who say everything's just the same as it's always been? Second Peter, Peter 3. Go to Second Peter 3. Um, yes. Can I ask a yes. About the, uh, okay, let me go back because I'd already flipped to Second Peter. Let me go back. That's all right. Let me look. Very good question. I didn't look, so shame on me. So Psalm 10, verse 8. Talks about the secret places. Um, no, it's the word sitar. Um, it's the, it's actually mistar, which is a noun that comes from the verb sitar. So they're related terms. So, because they're using it showing the bad guy. Yeah, they do think, do, do people who do things, well, I don't want to say do bad people do things in the secret or out in the open, but these, this day and age, people just do whatever they want to out in the open, don't they? But if you're ashamed about what you're doing, most of the time people do it in the dark. They do it in secret. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, Second Peter 3 talks about how it's going to be in the last days. Starting in verse 1, it says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up, or actually wake up, your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. If I were to look at the Hebrew, I bet in the Hebrew that would have said, Acherit Hayamin. So in the last days, or in the end of days, there would come scoffers. And what does a scoffer do? Does a scoffer say, hey, the ways of God are great. We should walk in his ways. We should walk in his commandments. If you look back at the Greek word, the Greek word means a mocker. 
So a mocker, a false teacher, somebody who says, it's never going to happen. Walking according to their own lust, verse 4, and saying, here's what these scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, is that true? <laughs> no, a lot of things have changed, but wickedness has been from the beginning. So in their perception, what are they, how are they viewing God's judgment? It, it hasn't happened yet. The hammer hasn't fallen yet. Okay, now let's think about this for just a moment. Peter wrote this. What, how many captivities had already happened before that? The Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity, which was still happening then, still happening now. So does God judge sin? Does he judge lawlessness? Yes, but how do scoffers view it? Well, he judged those people, but he's not judging me at the moment. If you keep reading in 2 Peter, look at verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. For what reason? Not willing that any should perish, but that some should come to repentance. What's it say? All. All should come to repentance. So it might seem like the Lord in some people's eyes, is dilly-dallying. But really, what is God doing? God has a time and a plan for everything. But what is he giving us time to do? Repent. He's giving us time to repent. Because look at the first word of verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. So there will come a time when God says judgment has to come. So we read last night in Jeremiah, and we've been reading in Jeremiah, where God has sent Jeremiah to preach repentance, repentance, repentance. What are the people doing? They're listening to the false teachers. And eventually what happens in 586 B.C.? Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The judgment came. Did Jeremiah prophesy this? Was it a shock like, oh, God kept us in the dark? Amos 3.7, God does nothing without doing what? Revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So it was not an afterthought. It happened exactly the way God had said it was going to happen. All right, Psalm 44. This is where we're going to start today. Psalm 44. Still looking at that word sitar and what it means for God to hide his face. I guess these two verses that we've read so far would have, would have been enough, but, you know, I'd like to give you enough to, to, so you can say, all right, we'll get the point. Psalm 44, verse 24. We'll start in verse 23, but the key verse is 24. It says, Awake, verse 23, Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Doesn't that sound a little similar to what we read in 2 Peter? You know, people might view God delaying his judgment as slackness, but what is God giving everybody the opportunity to do? To repent. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide? That's the word sitar. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? So the, um, the sons of Korah here in this psalm, they're asking this question, Lord, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction, our oppression? What is God waiting for? He's waiting for repentance. So when God hides his face, keeps his blessings from his people, sends his people into captivity, whatever you want to look at, what causes that to happen? Is it because God forgot them? Or is it because the people forgot God? Verse 25, it says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust. 
Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. So this is a prayer of repentance. What does God hear? Does God hear prayers, lawless prayers? What scripture backs that up? Proverbs 28.9. Let's go to Proverbs 28.9. Proverbs 28.9. Proverbs 28.9 is the standard for what kind of prayer that God hears. Proverbs 28.9, it says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, hearing the Torah, even his prayer is what? An abomination. abomination. So, there are several things that... (coughs) Yes. Does someone have a question? Okay, sorry. thought someone had a question. Um, I'll mute everybody. Okay, so God hears prayers of repentance. God does not hear things that he considers an abomination. So when you turn away your ear from hearing the law, that means that you're living a life of what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. What is lawlessness the opposite of? Righteousness. So you've got two sides of the coin. So... God, so the psalmist back in Psalm 44 is saying, Lord, why are you hiding your face from us? Well, here's the answer. What's God waiting for? Repentance. He's waiting for repentance. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance on the part of David after what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. So this is a prayer of repentance. Psalm 51, 9. We'll read verses 7 through 9. Psalm 51, 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So when David is praying this prayer, when he says, God, hide your face from my sins, what is he asking God to do? If we were to boil that down to one word, what is he asking God for? Forgiveness. He's asking God for forgiveness. Hide your face from my sins. Don't even... Refer back to them, Lord. Hide your face from them. Blot out my iniquities. So you see the parallelism. Hiding the face from hiding his face from the from his sins is the same as what? Blotting out his iniquities. So when David is saying blot out my iniquities, he's not saying blot out my occasional uh-oh. Iniquity means a lifestyle of sin. That's a lawlessness. So you see the word iniquity used here in verse 9 and sins also. But then if you look at verse 3, you see the word transgressions. The word transgression is the word pesha. That is willful sin. That's rebellion. And verse 3 says, I acknowledge my transgressions, my rebellions. So that's not a sin like, oh, I messed up. I didn't know I did it, but I met. No, that is willful sin. Doing it on purpose, transgression. So David is praying, Lord, hide your face from my sins. Forgive me. Blot out my iniquities. So we can see from this prayer, this is what makes David a man after God's own heart. It's not that David was perfect, but when David sinned, when David committed 
sin or transgression, whatever you want to call it, what did he do? Did he continue in it or did he put on sackcloth and ashes and ask for forgiveness? That's what makes David a man after God's own heart. All right, Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Key verses 17. But we're going to read verses 16 through 18. So start in verse 16. It says, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. And at the beginning of verse 16 where it says, Hear me, it should be better translated as answer me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. So when he's saying, answer me, what is, David, or what is David doing? He's praying a prayer. He's praying, Lord, answer me. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me or answer me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. Now, what if David was living a lifestyle of lawlessness? Would God answer his prayer? God would not even hear his prayer. His prayer would be an abomination. But what does he know? What is he praying? He's praying a prayer of repentance. He's saying, Lord, help me. Forgive me of my sins. Help me. Deliver me from my enemies. And answer me speedily. What's that mean, answer me speedily? Lord, I'm kind of in a pickle here. Answer me quick, please. I need your help. Did, did God ever deliver David from his enemies? Yes. Time and time and time again. How many times did Saul try to take his life? Time and time and time again. Why couldn't Saul take his life? Because David was to be anointed king. And who was to come through David but Messiah? So if Saul would have killed David, the plans of God would have been spoiled. So who do you think put it into Saul's heart to try to kill David? Satan. It was Satan. Absolutely. Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Verse The key verse is 14, but we'll read 13 through 18 for context. It says, But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? What do you see is parallel here? Hiding your face, God hiding his face is what? Him casting off your soul. Is that a good thing? That is not a good thing. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Lord, why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and acquaintances into darkness. So this prayer is being prayed and he's asking God, Lord, why have you done all of these things? What, what scripture can we trace it right back to? Proverbs 28, 9. When you turn your ear away from hearing Torah, when you turn your way from hearing God's instructions, 
What keeps God from hearing your prayers? It's your lawlessness. It's your iniquity that separates you from God. Psalm 102. Psalm 102. In fact, we're about to read a scripture that almost says the exact same thing as I just said. Psalm 102. The key verse is 2. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come before you, or come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. In the day that I call, answer me speedily. So do not hide from me, hide your face from me in the day of trouble. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. What is this a prayer of? This is a prayer of repentance. Yes, anytime that you see that word hide is that word sitar, yes. All right, Psalm 143.7. We'll look at one more in Psalm and then we'll go to Isaiah. I wonder if Isaiah says anything differently about God hiding his face. If the word is consistent, will it disagree with each other? Mm-mm. Will not disagree. 143, Psalm 143, verses 7 and 8. Key verses 7. It's going to sound like we're reading the same thing over and over again. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. What's parallel here? When God hides his face from you, you're like one who does what? Goes that dies, goes into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I, will lift, for I lift up my soul to you. So this is another prayer of David, a prayer of repentance. The title of in my Bible for Psalm 143 says, An Earnest Appeal for Guidance and Deliverance. So who is David looking to for guidance and deliverance? Is he looking to another army? Is he looking to Egypt? Or is he looking to God? He's looking to God. He's looking to the Lord. Answer me speedily, O Lord. All right, uh, Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 answers the question, why does God hide his face from people? (coughs) Psalm 59. Sorry, Isaiah. (laughs) Got Psalm on the brain, don't I? Isaiah 59, thanks. I'm glad y'all are listening. Isaiah 59. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. The key verse is 2. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. What does that verse mean? Is God limited by some something God can do God can answer every prayer of every person in the world at the snap of a finger his ear is not heavy that he can't hear them all his arm is not short that he can't help but look at verse 2 but but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so do you see the parallelism To have God have his face hidden from you means to be separated from God. 
So we've seen other places to be to have for God to hide his face means that you die to go to the pit. Right here it says for God to have his face hidden from you means to be separated. It says you're in, so those are the same means the same thing. Your iniquities, your lawlessness has have separated you from God. From your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. What verse pops into your brain when you see that? Proverbs 28, 9. Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood. Here's why. Here's why God's not going to hear. Because you can just hear the people saying, well, what did we do? What did we do? Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity, lawlessness. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. So God just lays out the charges, says, here's what you've done. This is why I'm not hearing your prayers. Because if God was hearing their prayers, what, that, what does that mean the people would have already done? They would have repented. But they're continuing the sin and expecting God to bless them anyway. So think about what we're reading in Malachi. Malachi, through God, is bringing all of these charges against the people. And what are the people saying? Are they saying, oh, we're, we're, we were cut to the heart. How are the people responding? What did we do? We We didn't do anything wrong. In what way have we done all this? And God lays out all the charges. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39. Verses 21 through 24. Still looking at the phrase, hiding my face, what it means. Verse 21. This is, if you look at the context, it's all about the battle of Gog and Magog, or Gog and Magog. 21 says, I will set my glory among the nations. Among the who? The nations. Why would he do that? Let's keep reading. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. Now think about this. Think about why God would want the nations to see this deliverance. For thousands of years, what do the nations think has kept them being over the Jewish people? Their gods are mightier than the God of Israel. Their might has won them the victory. But what do they not realize? Let's keep reading. Verse 22. So the house of Israel shall know. So here's the house of Israel. So Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Verse 23. The Gentiles shall know. The nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity not because I couldn't deliver them. Not because I was weak and y'all conquered, y'all conquered me. What does God say? The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their what? Iniquity. Their lawlessness. Their disobedience. Because they were unfaithful to me, therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies. Does it say that the enemies were just so mighty and powerful that they just conquered them with the sword because they were so strong and so awesome? No. God said, I allowed it to happen. 
Think about the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. The ne vision Nebuchadnezzar had. <coughs> the head of gold was Babylon. All these world powers, chests and arms, media, uh, silver, media Persia, belly and, th belly and thigh, bronze, that was Macedonia, Greece. All these nations God established to do what? To rule over Israel until the time of the end. And then it says that image was crushed with a rock cut out without hands. Who is that? That's Messiah. And it says that's when that, that rock, that stone cut out without hands, becomes a great and powerful kingdom that will never be conquered. So God is saying, it's not because I couldn't deliver them. What did we read in Isaiah? What separated the people from God? It was their sins. It was their iniquity. It was their lawlessness. It says, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. That word hid, that's the word sitar. I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, that's rebellions, willful sin. I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Hidden, that's the word sitar. So according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, their, their rebellions, I have dealt with them. So that's what God is trying to show the nations. The nations think that they are the ones who kept Israel oppressed and kept them subservient to them. But what are they finding out during the battle of Gog and Magog? It wasn't because they were so cool and they were so awesome what caused them to be so powerful? God allowed it. God allowed them. Bring that into today's world. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh huh. And what happened before happened again then. Happened and again. It's happening in our day and age too. Exactly. Stuff that we thought would never happen again. You're seeing it happen again. You're seeing the same hate. You're seeing the same propaganda. You're seeing the same satanic. Influence is what's happened before will happen again. Exactly. And what do we know about the day of the Lord according to the book of Zechariah? Go to Zechariah really quickly. What do we know about the day of the Lord? It's coming soon, but what do we know about all nations will come against Jerusalem, but what do we know about the Jewish people? One third died during the Holocaust, but how bad is it going to be in the day of the Lord? Two thirds. Go to Zechariah 13. Verse 8, Zechariah 13, 8. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall cut off, be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will sit and I will answer them. So if they're calling on his name and, they're, and he's answering them, is he still hiding his face from them? At this point, no. And I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. How do you say my people in Hebrew? Ami. What did Hosea name one of his children? Lo Ami, not my children. But then Hosea says there's going to come a time when, these people, when my people will not be called Lo Ami, but they will be called me, my people. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. 
And then verse 14, verse, chapter 14, verse 1 starts, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And then verse 2 says, I will gather a few nations to battle against Jerusalem. It says all nations. So you kind of, you're starting to see, it's just, it's like an ebb and a flow. You see these nations that are supporting Israel and then like quickly they turn away. So it's ebbing and flowing and then eventually what's going to happen? All nations are going to turn against Israel. If you watch the prophecy update this week, the head of the United Nations says, looks like we're going to have to force a two-state solution on Israel. Hmm. They're not going to accept it voluntarily. But here's the thing. Israel won't accept it, and neither will the Palestinians. Right. The Palestinians don't want a two-state solution. But there's the UN, all nations. Exactly. Trying to force it. And, see, and then once they get that, who's going to confirm it? So it's all just kind of paving the way and setting the stage for that one world government. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Remember, we're going to look here in just a little bit at who, who is Israel. Who is Israel? So when, we, when it talks about my people, is it talking about just people who live in the nation of Israel? No. When we talk about Israel, what are we talking about? Spiritual Israel. We're talking about what God looks for is that circumcision of the heart. We're going to look at that in just a little bit. Very good question. All right, go to Micah 3. Micah 3. Micah 3. Micah 3, verse 4. We'll start in verse 1 to get the context. It says, And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? What's the answer to that question? Should they know how to rule in justice and, and cor ju correct judgment? Absolutely. That's what, all, that's what the kings, that's what the priests, that's what the prophets are all supposed to be doing. If they're anointed ones, they're supposed to be teaching people righteousness, justice. Verse 2, it says, You hate good and love evil. Okay, if that was true then in the days of Micah, how much more true is it today? You who, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them, literally will not answer them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. So what does this say about the wicked? Those who are not ruling in justice and living in righteousness. What's it say? When they cry to the Lord, what's God not going to do? He's, he won't hear them. Unless they're praying what? Unless they're praying a prayer of repentance. It says he will hide his face from them even at that time. What does at that time refer to? Tribulation. That's tribulation. That's talking about future events. So it's talking about then, but it's also pointing us into the future at that time because their deeds have been evil. All right, so what can we, what can we glean from this? When God hides his face from us, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Bad. That's a bad thing. 
and it's in a it puts you in a bad place because it's so we saw several places that were parallel that said when God hides his face you are completely separated from God but luckily as long as you have breath in your body what do you always have a chance to do you always have a chance to repent all right so we're going to look at a new topic we're still looking at the topic of, or still looking at the word sitar, but I want us to take a moment, and I want us to go to the book of Zephaniah, because Zephaniah uses the word sitar in a very unique way. Zephaniah, his name is prophetic too. Do you realize that? Zephaniah in Hebrew is two words. Safan Yah. Safan Yah. Safan is Hebrew word 6845. And Safan means hidden. So we're seeing all these words that mean to be hidden, to be concealed. So Safan means hidden. Yah, that's the tetragrammaton. So Safan Yah means hidden by the Lord. So if his name, Zephaniah, if the name Zephaniah means Zephaniah, hidden by the Lord, what do you think that's trying to point us to? Is there going to be a time when God's people are going to be hidden by the Lord? What do you think that's pointing us to? Rapture. Sounds a whole lot like the rapture, doesn't it? <laughs> Chapter 1 is all about the day of the Lord. If we look at, at verse 2, Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. When does this, when does this reach its fulfillment? When, things will, when God's wrath will be just completely poured out unbridled. That's the day of the Lord. The title of my Bible actually says, at the beginning of verse 2, it says, The Great Day of the Lord. So all of chapter 1 is about the day of the Lord talking about how terrible all the horrors, how bad it's going to be. In other words, you don't want to be here. Go to chapter 2. So how do you keep yourself from facing that full unbridled wrath of God? Look at chapter 2. The title of my Bible here says, A Call to Repentance. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. The word sitar is used in verse 3. Verse 1 says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Now I want to pause there. I know there's not a comma. So, what is the prophet saying through the inspiration of God? He's saying, if you don't want to be, have God's unbridled wrath poured out on you, what do you need to do? You need to repent before it happens. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. What does meek mean? Does it mean scared? It means humble. All you humble of the earth. What did Messiah say? Who's going to inherit the earth? The meek shall inherit the earth. Not the proud, not the haughty. It says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, 
who ha so here's here's what characterizes the meek who have upheld his justice seek righteousness seek humility does it say seek lawlessness just do whatever you want to do seek righteousness what's righteousness the opposite of what lawlessness seek righteousness seek humility it may be that you will be hidden that's sitar in the day of the Lord's anger. You see that little nugget right there? So it, what is this telling us? It's saying before God wrecks the joint. What does He want us to do? He's saying repent. And if you repent, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. What's the verb there, it may be? Is that um, perfect tense or imperfect tense? I don't have it pulled up at the moment, but I can t tell you in just a second. Zephaniah. Zephaniah 2, 3. Okay, so your question was, it may be, is it perfect tense or future tense? It may be. It's actually ulai, which means perhaps, maybe. Yep, ulai, maybe. So, yeah. So, what is, what is God saying through the prophet Zephaniah? If you repent, if you live righteously, if you seek humility, it may be, maybe. What if you slip up and say, it's not going to happen. So what does it all hinge on? It hinges on you living righteously. Before the decree is issued, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you. So you can see through this, through this scripture here in Zephaniah, the name Zephaniah means hidden by the Lord. What is he, what is he saying? He's saying before the Lord's anger comes upon you, if you want to be hidden by the Lord, what do you need to be? You need to be you need to be repented up. You need to be make sure that you have repented and make sure that you are ready to go. Yeah, it says for Gaza shall be forsaken. So this is talking about judgment for the nations. So when does the ultimate judgment on the nations happen? In the day of the Lord. So all of this, yeah, were some of these nations destroyed back, back in the days of the prophets? Absolutely. But a lot of these nations keep getting rebuilt. But when is the ultimate destruction going to happen? In the day of the Lord. Yep. And that's not to say that, you know, we're, we won't, you know, have persecutions or we won't have things that might happen but god wants god's desire is for his people to repent and come back to him come to him i want to look at psalm 27 psalm 27 5 because this relates to what we are what we're looking at Psalm 
Yep. Yep, Adonai sometimes allows suffering purely for his glory. Absolutely, he, it does. We're, like, I, like I said, we're not, God said, or Yeshua said that we would suffer persecution. But also the scripture says that, what, how it was in the days of Lot, in the days of Noah, so shall it be in those days. So what did he do? Did he allow them to stay here and suffer God's wrath? Or did he take them out before the wrath was poured out? Took them out. All right, Psalm 27. I want to start in verse 4. Psalm 27, 4. It says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. When it says all the days of my life, that's talking about the days on, that he lives, but also in the days to come in the future, in eternity future. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Verse 5 says, for in the time of trouble, literally says in the time of evil, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Do you see the word hide? Yep. That's the word Zephon, as in Zephaniah, as in Zephaniah. So he, talking about the Lord, shall hide me in his pavilion. That, that word pavilion is sukkah. Think about what the tribulation period points us to. It points us to those three fall festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the um, Feast, Day of Atonement, and also the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles talks about the establishment of the kingdom. So that word sukkah, sukkot, that points us to a time yet future. So he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. That word hide is sitar. So you notice how the subject matter here is very similar to what we just read in Zephaniah 2. So Zephaniah 2 says, before the wrath falls, what do you need to do? You need to repent. Verse 5 in Psalm 27.5 says, for in the time of trouble, in the time of evil, hide, he shall hide me in his pavilion. And in the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. So this is talking about a time yet future. And it uses those two same words. Go to Psalm 31. We see the same words used in almost the same way. We'll read verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. What does it mean to fear God? To obey Him. To obey him. So when we see the phrase, laid up for those who fear you, this is talking about people, is this talking about people who are living lifestyles of lawlessness, don't care anything about the ways of God? No. This is talking about people who trust in God, who obey God, who keep His commandments, who love Him, but obey him out of love. Since which you have laid up for those who fear you, who obey you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. What's it mean to trust in God? It means to have faith. Which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the Son of Men. 
You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. That word secret place, that's the word sitar. From the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Do you see the phrase, you shall keep them secretly? All of that, that all comes from the word Safan. Yes. Psalm 31.20. Yeah. Psalm 31.20. So Psalm 31.20, let me read it again. So you shall, you shall hide them in the secret place of your presence. The secret place, that's the word Sitar. From the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly. That phrase is Safan. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion. That word is Sukkah from the strife of tongues. So do you see how the subject matter was almost identical to Psalm 27? So what is this saying? How can we tie it right back to Zephaniah 2? If we listen to the warnings of God, God is saying, I'm going to pour out judgment. I'm going to pour out judgment unbridled during the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 2.2 says, before the decree is issued, what do you need to do? repent live a lifestyle of of righteousness before god and verse 3 says seek the lord all you meek of the earth so you see how these these words in zephaniah are connected to these words in the psalm so the psalmist in in psalm 27 in psalm 31 and zephaniah use the same subject matter it says god has a secret place to keep people from the plots of men. To keep people from the, from the wrath of God. But who's going to be hidden in that day, according to the Scriptures? Is it going to be people who are just living any lifestyle they want to live? Or is it talking about the people who are living righteously? Notice it says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, in Zephaniah 2.3. All you meek of the earth. And that goes right along with what Messiah says in the Beatitudes. He says, who will inherit the earth? The meek. The meek shall inherit the earth. Daniel? Yes. In verse 20, the word hide, I see, is Sitar, which is 5641. But mm -hmm. the word secret is 5643 and says it's Sater. Is that like Yeah, that would be related. That would be related terms. You're right. So verse 20 would be... Verse 20, or the first word, hide, you're right, that is satar. That's the verb. And then secret place, satara, that would be the, the noun. That would just be a noun that comes from the verb. Yeah, thank, thank, you. thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> and in verse 19, that phrase, laid up, is the font again. Yep, laid up. Verse, verse 19, the phrase laid up, it's Safan also. Yep. So you see how, how all these phrases are tied together. And what do they point us to? They point us to a time when God is going to hide or keep hidden his people. They're going, he's going to hide them in himself until the wrath or the indignation is passed. So that reminds me of Isaiah 26. Yep. And we that scripture might come up later. 
That scripture might come up later. And in two weeks. <laughs> and in two weeks. All right. Mine might be more like 30 minutes, but all right. We'll see, though. Okay. So we spent a lot of time in the, in the what we call the Old Testament, looking at that word, looking at the words that can mean to hide, to be hidden, secret, all those different things. Now I want us to go to the New Testament and see, is the, is the concept any different? When we see the word secret or mystery or anything along those lines, is that something God wants us to overlook? Or is he saying, I want you to dig a little bit deeper into this. So we're going to look at, for the rest of the time, we're going to look at the phrase or the word mystery. The word mystery. And it comes from the Greek word mysterion. Mysterion. Spell it M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. So you could spell it mystery, take the Y off, put I-O-N. So mysterion. So you see where the word mystery comes from, right? It comes from the Greek word mysterion. Okay. Why we say it mystery instead of mystery, I don't know. So just, just the way things are. So mysterion. The Strong's word or the the Strong's number is 3466. And if you look at how it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word mysterion is synonymous or is translated with the Hebrew word raz, R-A-Z, or sowed. Okay, so we looked last night at the word sowed and how the word sowed is used. So when you see in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, where it says, Behold, I, I show you a mystery. We could also take out that word mystery and put in the word sowed. I show you a secret, something that's hidden. But, like I said, it's one of those things that's hidden in plain sight. It just has to be that God reveals it in his time. So let's go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 11. So we're going to be looking at different places where the word mystery or mysterion in Greek is used. The first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at what is the purpose of the parables? What is the mystery of the parables? All right. Chapter 13, starting at verse 10. It says, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? So, I mean, that would kind of like be the modern day equivalent of saying, Why don't you talk to them in plain English? So he's saying, Why do you speak to them in riddles and parables? Now, think about the answer to why. Because if they've got their ear tuned to it, they're going to hear exactly what God has to say. Otherwise, what are they going to hear? They're going to hear a nice story. Verse 11 says, He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries, that's mysterion, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him will be more given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. This is from Isaiah 6, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see but not perceive. 
For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So think about those words. When Isaiah received those words, Isaiah was seeing these words in a vision. He was receiving these words in a vision. And remember the Lord said, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, me, me, me. And God said, you can go, but I'm going to warn you the people are not going to hear you. They're not going to hear you. They're not going to listen to you. So think about the purpose of the parables here. When Yeshua gave forth a parable, there were people who heard it as just a story. But then there were people who heard it from the spiritual aspect. That's the mystery of that parable. That parable was meant to be, if you really have your ear tuned to it, you're going to hear what God has to say. Take the parable of the seed. If you didn't have an ear for it, you would just hear a story about some guy throwing seed on the ground. But if you had your ear tuned to it, what would you hear? The seed is the gospel. There's four kinds of hearts. There's hearts that receive the gospel. There's hearts that receive the words. There's hearts that... So it just depends on whether you have an ear to hear it or whether you don't have an ear to hear it. And that's what Messiah is telling the disciples. You have an ear to hear. They don't. Why don't they have a heart, a ear to hear? If you look at what the scripture says down here from Isaiah, it's because they don't want to hear. It's because they don't want to hear it. It's not because Daniel. God ordained this person to hear it and this person not to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. Yes. Is this not also a blessing that those of us who are in touch with the Spirit of God can hear His voice when He speaks, even if it's in a parable? We understand Him yeah. through the, the working of the Spirit of God in our lives. Right. You know, and that I mean that's what He was. <clears throat> that's what He was telling the. Uh, that's what He was telling the disciples. He's saying. You're getting to hear things that even Isaiah didn't get to hear. You're hearing things that none of the prophets got to hear, but you're hearing them, you're seeing them, and you're going to get to see these things fulfilled. Yep. So let's let's take the let's look at some other places really quickly. Look at Mark four. Mark four. Pretty much the same words, but just translated a little bit differently but carry the same meaning. Mark 4, verses 10 through 12. Mark, 10, Mark 4, 10 says, But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, in hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. So what was the purpose of the parables according to Messiah? If they hear the parable and they understand it, what are they going to do? They're going to repent. They're going to turn. So they've been, it's been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. So notice how these parables are kind of spoken in a, in a way that would be a mystery, but again, it's one of those mysteries that's hidden in plain sight. 
All right, go to Luke chapter 8. We're going to go back to Matthew 13 in just a minute. But I just want to show you some different places where that the same phrase is used. Luke 10. Luke 9. Luke 8. Luke 8. Verses 9 and 10. Luke 8. Verses 9 and 10. It says, Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So these parables that were given are to help us to understand the ways of God, the things of God. So these parables teach us about God's character, who God is, how he interacts with mankind. And that's what the purpose of the parable was. Was if you want to hear it, you've got to have your ears tuned to hear them. All right, go back to Matthew 13. But this time, go to verses 34 and 35. It's the same topic. Same topic about parables. Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. So this is still talking about parables and their purpose. So remember back in verse, um, verse 11, Messiah said that it was given to them to know the mysteries of God. That's what parables are for, to help reveal the, the deeper things, the deeper understandings about the Lord. Verse 34 says, All these things Yeshua spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. All right, that scripture, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Where does that come from? Psalm 78. Now, I want you to keep these words in mind. So Messiah spoke to the people in parables for a purpose, to help reveal the things of God, the ways of God. All right, do you see the phrase the, in, in Matthew 13, 35? Do you see the phrase, the, um, the words of my mouth? I will open my mouth in parables. Okay, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind when we go back. Okay? All right, go to Psalm 78. So kind of keep a finger, keep a finger in Matthew 13 because we're going to flip back so you can see parallel. Psalm 78. All right. So Psalm 78, 2 is what's quoted in Matthew 13, 35. But let's get the context. Go to verse 1. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So when Messiah was speaking words out of his mouth to the people, what was he giving them? He was giving them Torah. He was giving them law. He was giving them instruction. 
Verse 2 is what's quoted in Matthew 13. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings or riddles of old. In other words, these are stories you've heard your whole life, but you didn't know the prophetic meaning that they had. So what you thought this whole time was a story was actually something to teach you about the ways of God. And that's what Messiah was, was using them for. Verse 3, it says, We have heard and known, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works which, we had, which He has done. In verse 4, do you see the phrase generation to come? Underline that phrase. That is the Hebrew phrase, Lador Acharon, which means the last generation. So all of these parables that we have been, that these people had heard, passed down from their fathers, passed down from generation to generation to generation, who is ultimately going to understand the prophetic implications of them? The last generation. The last generation. And what are these words, these sayings of old, what are they? If you go back to verse 1, it says, Give ear, O my people, to my law, to my Torah. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. So where did these words, this Torah, come from? It came from the mouth of God. It came from the lips of God. Doesn't that tie right back to 2 Timothy 3 that talks about the words, Scripture is God-breathed? God-breathed? So we will tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew says, we will, He will cause them to know, the last generation, cause them to know the praises of the Lord. So it's going to be a, a time when they're, they're going to know the words of God. And who is fulfilling this psalm? And who is Messiah, Messiah Yeshua was fulfilling this psalm. Absolutely. Yes. Is the, the last, the generation to come, is that the, the third that's remaining? That would be whatever the last generation would be. Yeah, that would be... Before the rapture. Before the rapture. upon you too. Yep. Yep. Before the rapture. That's us. Yep. Reminds you of Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Let's just look at that. Daniel 12, 4. Daniel 12.4. Daniel 12.4. says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So you see how that ties right to what we read in Psalm 78. Which generation is going to really have their understanding opened to those parables and those ways of God? That last generation, the Lador Acharon. So many will run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. All right, let's go to... Go to Romans 
So we looked at what the purpose or the mystery of the parables was. It's to teach us about God's Torah, God's ways. Because why is that so important? Why is it so important to know the commandments and the ways of God, especially in the last generation? What did the feasts and festivals prophesy of? Not just the first coming, but the second coming. It's to keep us in the light and not in the dark. That sounds a whole lot like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, doesn't it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let's go to Romans 11.25. I don't want to chase too many Ibexes because... Romans 11.25. So this is the mystery of who is Israel. Verse 25, it says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then verse 26 begins, And so all Israel will be saved. So in 25, the word mystery, that's the word mysterion, but you should not, but Paul's desire is that you shouldn't be mis- ignorant of the mystery that blindness has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that kind of raises the question of who is Israel? When it says all Israel shall be saved, is that talking about just the physical descendants or is it talking about more than that? Let's go back to, stay in the same chapter, go back to verses 11 through 10. Same chapter, Romans 11, look back to verse 7. It says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. Doesn't that read almost like what we read in, from Isaiah chapter 6? Seeing they shall not see, hearing they shall not hear. Verse 9 says, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they should not see and bow down their back always. So this is talking about some are going to accept it, some are not. So let's get a little bit deeper into it. Go back to Romans 9. Romans 9, 6 gets to the point. And you're probably thinking, well, why didn't we start in Romans 9, 6 in the, start, in the first place, right? Romans 9, 6. Romans 9, 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, I want to pause there. So this is saying just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Israel, does that mean that you are part of Israel according to the scripture? No, this is Paul speaking. These are not my words. It says, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Talking about physical descendants. It says, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, Think about this. Abraham, at, this when, at the time of Isaac, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was the son of what? Promise. Promise. 
the son of faith. Ishmael was the son of what? Whatever you want to call it. Doing your own thing, son of the flesh, whatever you want to call it. So when God gave Abraham the promise, did God give Abraham a son a year later? Two years later? Five years later? Ten years later? Fifteen? Twenty? Twenty? It was nearly 25 years later. So when we look at how long Abraham had to wait, Abraham had to wait a long time. So in that time, think about how people are. They get impatient. So what, what was Sarah's bright idea? Hey, we need to help God. And then what happened? Here we have Ishmael. And, and that's worked out well for everybody, right? So, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's the son of promise. That's the son of faith. So when God, when God told Abraham, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars, was that through Ishmael or was that through Isaac? That was through Isaac. And remember what Genesis 15, 6 said. God accounted it to him. He believed God and God accounted it to him for what? Righteousness. Righteousness. So that's what it's talking about. This is talking about faith. So if you are of Israel, that means you are grafted in by faith. We've got all kinds of scriptures we're going to look at in just a minute. That is those, verse 8, that is those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Did God capitalize on his promise? He said, I'm going to come at this time. You'll have a son. God said, this is going to happen. And it happened. When you believe God's promises, what is that called? That's called faith. And that is what Paul is trying to get at. You are called Israel when you believe in God's promises and you are grafted in by faith. All right, so we looked at Romans 11, we looked at Romans 9. All right, I want to, I want to go back to the Old Testament for a minute. I want to go to Leviticus 23. Can I, um, can I mm-hmm. Before you move on. Yeah. In this passage, is he trying, is the point of Ishmael or is it the point even if you're the seed of Isaac, and you're not a believer. Like, is, was this, like, directed at maybe I think the it children was, of Isaac, the descendants of Isaac that still weren't getting the picture? Right, well? some were Israel, some were Jacob. Yeah, so like, think about when we read in the scriptures, you know, God talks to Jacob, right. and he talks to Israel. When he talks to Jacob, who is he talking to? Unrepentant, you know, don't care. But when he's talking to Israel, when he says all Israel shall be saved, it doesn't say all Jacob shall be saved. So those that are unrepentant, that's not who he's talking to, but all Israel shall be saved. So does that help to answer the question, kind of? What's that? Let me chew on it for a minute, okay? Let me chew on that question. Well, I think. Because it seems very like specific that he's pointing to the children of the flesh. We just discussed the Ishmael. Well, what comes to my yeah, what comes to my mind? See, this is when this this is Paul speaking in Philippians. Let's go over to Philippians real quick. Philippians three. 
Philippians 3, Paul gives this whole, his, he lays out pretty much his resume of how he used to be. But all of these were attributes of the flesh. Daniel? Yes. Can you please fill us in on what the question is? The question is in Romans 11, or Romans 9, who is he, who are the children of the flesh? Who, who, is, it, who is Paul aiming his discussion at? Thank you. That, that's the question. Kind of the, who is he aiming the, the discussion to? All right, look at Philippians 3. This is Paul laying out kind of his resume. Um, start at verse 4. Actually, verse 3. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Yeshua the Messiah, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he ha may have confidence in the flesh, I more, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day, the stock of the... Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. So he's saying if anybody could have gotten into the kingdom by works of the flesh, it would be me. Because he's saying, I kept the law as a Pharisee. If anybody would have been declared righteous by the law, it would have been me. But then look at, how does verse 7 begin? But. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for Messiah. So what did he realize about all the things that he was trying to do through the flesh to please God? It didn't work. So what did he realize? If I wanted to, if I want, okay. All these things that Paul did, he thought gave him credibility in the eyes of God what did he realize on the road to Damascus the Lord spoke to him and said Paul Saul why do you kick against the goats and then he says who are you Lord I'm the Lord whom you persecuted so how do you think Paul felt whenever he was sitting here thinking but, but I, I, I did all these things Lord Lord did I not do all these things in your name and what was the Lord telling him you're persecuting me you're persecuting me. Now stop. <laughs> so that I, I think with Paul's prior experience, he's able to lead people back in Romans. He's able to lead people in a way they should go to kind of direct their thinking. Don't think that you're going to be right, declared righteous by your works, by what you do. You have to come to the Lord by faith and keep, keep the law the way it was intended, which is out of love and by faith. Does that, does that help? Okay. If you have any other lingering questions, just, just throw it out, and I'll see if I can answer it a little bit better. Yes? Uh-huh. Right. Right. And that's why, think about what Messiah was telling the scribes and the Pharisees when he was talking to them in John 8. Go to John 8. Instead of me paraphrasing, let's go look at it. 
John 8, 37. So yeah, Linda's question was, you know, just because you're a physical descendant, that doesn't mean that you're considered a child of Abraham. Verse 37, it says, John 8, 37, it says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So they don't realize he's calling them sons of Satan. He says, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Yeshua said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What were the works of Abraham? Works of faith. Did Abraham do things to earn his salvation? He did the works because his love for God. His love for God. And it says, if you did the works of Abraham, you would be doing works out of love and out of faith, not because you wanted to have your own self-interest in mind. Verse 40 says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you truth, which I've heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So now they're changing their story. Abraham was their father. Now God's their, story, or God's their father. Verse 42, Yeshua said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Oh, he is just digging that knife in just deeper and deeper and deeper, isn't he? For I have proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come from myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? So he's saying, why, do you not understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, who? The devil. The devil. So when he's saying, you're of your father, he wasn't talking about Abraham. Because he said, if Abraham was your father, you would be obeying me, my words out of faith. But your father is the devil. Your father is Satan. Do you think they like that? No. No, no, no. All right, let's go back to Leviticus 23. Really quickly. Leviticus 23.1 begins, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to who? The children of Israel. Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. So, I mean, you could translate it as sons of Israel, but when we're talking about a collective group, we're talking about men and women, the children of Israel. So we looked back at Romans 9 that says, those who are of the flesh, does God necessarily count them as Israel? What if they're walking in disobedience? Loa me. But what if they are of faith? They are his children. They are children of Israel. Now, when it says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim, shall be holy convocations. These are my feasts. So what is he telling the children of Israel to keep? His feast, his, his Moedim. And there's so many places throughout Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament we can look to find where it uses the phrase, the children of Israel. So when it says the children of Israel, is it talking about to them? Or is it talking to us who are of faith, who are considered children of Israel? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, go to Galatians first. Galatians. 
Galatians chapter 3. I know you had your finger there. I know you did. Galatians chapter 3. We'll have to start in verse 5. I'm not going to read all of it. We're going to read verses 5 through 9. And this goes right along with what we read in Romans. So again, who wrote Galatians? Paul. Same guy who wrote Romans. Same guy who wrote Philippians and said, if anybody could have been kept by keeping Torah, it would have been me. And what's the context of the book of Galatians? Paul came in and said, salvation is by what? Faith. Faith. False teachers came in right behind him and said, no, Paul taught you wrong. Salvation is through circumcision and you have to keep the law perfectly. Then you can be saved. So it's a salvation by works. So the whole gist of Galatians is, is salvation by works or is salvation by faith? And if salvation is by faith, then what's the purpose of the law? That's what the whole gist of Galatians is about. Galatians 3.5, it says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Now wait, 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 wait. He preached the gospel to who? Abraham. Abraham. What's that mean about the gospel? Did it start with Messiah? No. No. Did it start just 2,000 years ago? So they preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. Why is that? Because through Abraham comes who? Messiah. Messiah. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So back in John 8 when those scribes were saying, we're sons of Abraham, can you see why Messiah was saying, no you're not. If you were sons of Abraham, what would you have? Faith. You would have faith, the faith of Abraham. What was the faith of Abraham? God said something, and what did Abraham say? Okie dokie. God, you said it. It's going to happen. Go to verse 26. Same chapter, Galatians 3, 26. It says, for you are all sons of God, but notice there's not a period. What's it say? Through faith. Through faith, Through faith in Yeshua the Messiah. For as many of you as were baptized in the Messiah have put on Messiah, there is, neither, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this is talking about salvation by faith. This is talking about being grafted into Israel. And notice it didn't say just the sons of Israel. B'nai Yisrael. It doesn't mean just sons. Notice it says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. Is there a way of salvation for the Jew and a set way of salvation for the non-Jew? Nope. nope. So what's that mean about dual covenant theology? John 14.6. Okay. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there's one way. One way. Okay. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So this is the mystery of who Israel is. 
Is it just the physical descendants, or does God look at Israel as those who come to him by faith? I want to add one more scripture here in just a moment. All right, Ephesians 2, verses 11, verse 11. We've got to start in verse 9. Actually, verse 8. We'll just start in one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, Ephesians 2, 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, who wrote Ephesians? Remind me again, who wrote Ephesians? Paul. Paul wrote Philippians. What did Paul say? If, I, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, it's me. Because I, can, I study, and there was one thing he, he forgot to mention. Whose feet did he study at? The feet, the feet of Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel, one of the greatest... Torah teachers of that time. He's saying, if anybody should have confidence in the flesh, it's me. And what does he say right here in verse 9? Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because if you try to save yourself and leave God out of the equation, then that's, that's not what salvation is. You're just trying to save yourself. Verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for what? Good works. Good works. So once you get saved, are you expected to just sit there or actually do good works, good things according to God's commandments and statutes and judgments, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, so if you were once a Gentile in the flesh, what does that mean? You're no longer a Gentile in the flesh. You, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made by flesh and made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you, her, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. So what is this telling us? Notice in verse 12 it says, Before you had Messiah, you were an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. That means you were a stranger. So what can we imply here? If you get saved, if you were part of the com weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel, once you become saved, you become grafted. grafted in. Part of the children of Israel. Part of the commonwealth of Israel. All right, one more scripture on this point. Go to Romans 2. Romans 2. Verses 26 through 29. And then we'll stop kicking the horse. Maybe. Alright, Romans 2, 26. It says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? What are the righteous requirements of the law? Before you keep, can keep God's commandments, what do you have to have? Love and faith. Love and faith. And that's from Deuteronomy 10. It's saying, if you love me, if you love me and have faith in me, then you're, all these things are going to follow. That's the righteous requirement of the law. Verse 27, it says, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are transgressors of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he who is a Jew is one who is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So this is talking about who does God view as part of his people? Is it people who are physically circumcised and don't keep the Torah, don't have any intention of loving God? Or is it people who love God and they're circumcised of the heart? That's the circumcision God is looking for, circumcision of the heart. I think so. I mean, because Jew, you know, is one who worships God. You know, so, I mean, you could you could look at that as one who, if you tie it to what he's going to say later in Romans, you know, one who is part of Israel, one who is part of the commonwealth of Israel, the children of Israel. So, yeah. All right. So we looked at who the mystery of who Israel is. Now we're going to look at the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. Now we just saw a little bit of that of that mystery back in Galatians chapter 3. Who was the gospel preached to? It was to Abraham. So was the gospel something that just started 2,000 years ago after the death, burial, and resurrection? It's something that's always, always been. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Absolutely, the Proto-Evangelium. With that, that scripture might come up just a little bit. Daniel. Yes. Just going back, my computer went crazy, but in Ephesians 2 and uh, 11, things right in there, when you was talking about Abraham mm -hmm. and circumcision, and he studied at the feet of a male and studied, people say today that we, even Paul did all the studying of the law, and it didn't get him anywhere. Why are we looking at the law as a part of our so, faith. So people, people might say the, the law didn't get Paul anywhere. Let's look at Acts 24, 14. So if anyone says that to you, you can read to them Acts 24, 14 to see if the law got Paul anywhere. And then we'll look at another place. Acts 24, 14, it says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. So this is long after the road to Damascus incident. So Paul is standing before Felix. He's about to go appeal to Caesar. And what is he saying here? He's saying, I believe all things which are written in the law and which are written in the prophets. Go to Acts 28. Acts 28. So Paul is in Rome. This is the last chapter of Acts. Acts 28.17 it says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together, so when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he's saying, I've never even done anything against the customs of our father. So when people say, you know, Paul didn't keep Torah, he didn't want people to keep Torah, and he didn't, he was, we just saw in two places that. He didn't just keep Torah. He said, you know, like, I believe all things which are written in the law and the prophets. 
Paul did not stop keeping the commandments of God. Right. What he did was he changed his position on God's promise to send a Messiah. Right. In Genesis 3 and in Genesis chapter 15, God promised to send the Messiah. And God, with his own words, said, this is my only begotten son. Right. And Paul said, no, God, you're a liar. Right. He had to change that. Right. And, and so come to faith. And so I think that's kind of the crux of what he's trying to get get at in Romans nine. He's saying if you're just if you're counting on your physical bloodline to get you into the kingdom and, and give you favor favor with God, he's saying if it would have worked with anybody, it would have worked with me more than anybody. Right. But what did he realize? So he didn't stop keeping the commandments. He realized he needed to have faith because faith is believing what that God will do what God promised. Right. And where are all God's promises located for us? Yep. Yeah. Keep, no. keep my commitments. Yes. Although it's a slightly different angle, it always seems to me that Jesus on the road to, to Emmaus, it says he taught, showed them all the things in the law and the prophets concerning himself, everything. So everything about that is in the law. Right. So you can't leave the law it's like it's all woven in there it just seems to me that i mean there was no new testament at that point and yet everything that they needed to know is in the law according to that passage right and so you it, it's not something you could leave behind right so i mean and that you're absolutely right if you look back at luke chapter 24 luke chapter 24 um How did he teach people about who he was? He didn't pull out the New Testament. Exactly. He pulled out, he, he showed them from the scriptures. Luke 22, 44. 22? Yeah, Luke, tw tw I'm sorry, 24, 24, 44. I'll get it right, I'll get it right. 24, 44. Also, Daniel, if you back up to 27, it tells you where he started. Yep. Yep. Luke 24, 27 says, at the begin at, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So verse 44 says, Then he said to them, talking about to the disciples, it says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled... And Melanie, that word fulfilled is plurao that we looked at last night. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So what did verse 44 refer to as the scriptures? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So he opened up their understanding that thing which had been mysterious to them, he opened it up to them and showed them who he was according to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The writings, the prophets, and the law. So when we see the phrase, the scriptures, what is that referring to? That's referring to this right here, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms.
All right, so Gavin has a question. He says, how do we know being grafted in is not only for salvation? That would tie, that is, that's a good question. Ephesians 2 tells us. Ephesians 2 says, at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. So all those covenants, and, and think about what's, What's the main covenant that we, that we think of? When you think of covenant, what's the main covenant you think of? The new covenant. So the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Let's go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Where were you at in Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2, 12. All right, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So it says, at the, before we were saved, it says we were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But now that we're grafted in, we're part of those covenants. And here's one of those covenants that show that we're not just grafted in for the purpose of salvation, just for salvation purposes. Jeremiah 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice it doesn't say the church. It says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So what does that mean? If you are grafted in, you become part of Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, thou was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put what in their minds? My Torah, my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. I, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what's the purpose of having the Torah written upon our heart? It's just, it, just so it can sit there like a book on a dusty shelf. It's for us to actually do it. So it's not when we're grafted into Israel and become part of Israel, that means that we have to live according to God's standard. What is God's standard? It's his Torah. It's his law. Can we add Ephesians 2.19 for Gavin's sake? Yep. Ephesians 2.19. Yep. Ephesians 2.19. Ephesians 2.19. It says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but what? Fellow citizens. With the saints, with the saints, wait a minute, saints. What characterizes a saint according to Revelation 14, 12? Those who have the faith but also keep what? Keep the commandments of God. So those who have faith and keep the commandments of God. With the saints. Revelation 14, 12. With the saints and members of household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Yeshua the Messiah himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Daniel. Yes. With reference to grafted in, uh, one of the things I think, you know, uh, people talking about Having the, the 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 law is now gone, mm -hmm. um, 
they misunderstood the whole point of grafting. The graft is the subsidiary to the main thing. It's the root that bears us, not the other way round. Right. I mean, that's and exactly what root. Paul says. If, if you're a horticulturist, it's the root which determines the vigor and all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, it may be because it's a stock, it may produce a different type of apple or whatever, but it's the root that determines uh, what the crop, how much the crop will be, how vigorous, how much the thing will grow, all sorts of things. Right. You can't, you can't it's not a replacement idea. Mm -mm. The graft is, is the thing that drives everything and determines the character. That's it. Yep. I mean, and that's what, and that is exactly what Paul is getting at at Romans 11. Let's go back to Romans 11. Romans 11. Starting in verse 16, Romans 11, 16. It says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Does it say a replacement? It says a partaker. What's a partaker? That means it's taking part in the same root. Verse 18 says, Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will, then, you will say then, Branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by what? Faith. Do not be haughty but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity, but toward you, goodness. And the next part I have underlined in my Bible. If you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be what? Cut off. Cut off. But they, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So that goes right along with what? Romans 11, verses 16 through 23. Daniel? Yes. Can we visit about how that scripture identifies who is the natural branches? Okay, if we go back to verse 11. So look at the whole... Let's see, the whole context, you'd have to go all the way back to verse 1. Romans 11, 1. It says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham. So he's saying, has God cast away his people, Israel? And Paul is saying, certainly not. I know because I'm an Israelite. So if we go to verse 11, it says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Talking about um, Israel, certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So that's how we know it's talking about um, Israel, because it says salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Does that help to answer your yeah. question? Yeah. 
yeah, it gets a little tricky because then you see conversations about, um, and and I re- I ask that because I'm in a conversation about if we are of Israel, but is this referring to a Jew? Is it referring to an Israelite who does not have faith? Um, yeah, it, it gets a little sticky, but mm-hmm. yes, I, I'm with you there. I yeah. understand what you're saying. So the tree, the root in the tree, that's talking about Israel, because notice it says some of the branches were broken off. So if the branches were broken off, it tells us down in verse 19, they were broken off by what? By unbelief. So even if they were native-born Israelites, you know, descent, physical descendants of Abraham, if they don't have faith... Even though they were born into the household of Israel, what happens? They're broken off. broken off. So they were born a part of the tree. They weren't born a part of the church. Right. They were born a part of the tree, not a part of the church. Absolutely. Isn't the root Yeshua? That's a good statement. Well, that would be, because yeah, who's holding it all together? Like you're, the, Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, those are the people of God, the children of God. Right. Verse 16 is Yeshua. Yep. The first fruit is holy. The lump is also holy. And the root, that's the household of God. Okay. We should always also remember that um, as far, that line that says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they may be enemies, but as far as the election is concerned, they're beloved. Right. You know, we folks so often forget that mm-hmm. in this replacement idea right that does not alter they're chosen absolutely god is loves them yeah and then that ties right back to what we just read in verse 23 god's able to graft them in again if they just turn and yeah that's it absolutely we're going to stop here for today we'll pick up next time lord willing talking about what is the mystery of the gospel